Hello. This is the Fight Back Podcast, hosted by exercise scientist Georgia Very. Here, you'll find a series of honest conversations about martial arts and mental health. My guests and I explore the statement that every martial artist has heard. Martial arts saved me. How and why do combat sports save people? Listen to find out. Before you get into today's episode, I have a really important favor to ask you. So you know how we've worked out that martial arts seem to be able to save lives? Well, I want to work out how we can do that on a global scale. So I'm hosting an international conference to uncover what is best practice for trauma-informed martial arts so that we can create an evidence-based therapeutic tool. After this conference, I'm going to be able to take this document to government, lobby for funding, and create training programs to upskill more people as trauma-informed martial arts instructors. This is going to mean that trauma-informed martial arts become accessible around the world to those who need them most. It's really, really important work that I'm doing, and you can help. So please pause this episode jump into the show notes and check out the GoFundMe page that I've linked. If you can donate, that is amazing. If you're unable to donate, please share the page to your social media. Both of those things really, really help the cause and you could save someone's life by gifting them the gift of martial arts. Okay, so I'll see you back here in a minute. Go do that and then we'll get into today's episode. Welcome to the Fight Back Podcast, Noelle. Everyone, I am here today with Noelle Brigden. She is the founder of Pesa Sipodo. She's going to explain what that is. It is amazing. And she's also an associate professor of political science at Marquette University. So can you elaborate a bit on that very brief intro, Noelle? Sure. Um, So I am an associate professor of politics at Marquette University, and I founded Pesa Si Poder, which is a nonprofit that promotes gender equity, community empowerment, and uh, healing from trauma through the practice of strength sports in El Salvador. Amazing. (laughs) Tell us more. So what, what is the program? How did it start? What does it look like? Those are big questions. Let's start with the first one. How did it start? How did it start? So I am a professor of politics. I do research on human security and violence and borders. And so I've done over a decade of work studying the Central American exodus and refugee flows, the violence that they confront as they're traveling, smuggling routes across Mexico to try to get to safety in the United States. And then I started a new project on the borders between street gangs because we've seen an escalation of police and gang violence, uh, extrajudicial violence in communities that people are fleeing. So I went back to study that. And as I was trying to connect with people, I started teaching powerlifting classes because that has been my own way of coping with doing this kind of work uh, over time. And it took off, it took on a life of its own. It was exceedingly popular, not only with the women who I first reached out to as a form of gender empowerment to sort of revalue the woman's body as a source of strength in a patriarchal context, but the men too gravitated towards the classes. And I learned a great deal about the vulnerability of the men in these situations where 
the boys actually had a harder time getting to the gym because of the gang violence. They were viewed as a potential threat or an enemy by police or other gangs from other neighborhoods and couldn't travel freely across the city. So just like the girls, they really lacked opportunities uh, to develop their strength and, and safe spaces where they could show their own vulnerability. So the gender empowerment program expanded. We work with both uh, boys and girls in these neighborhoods and older people as well, it's intergenerational, so all ages. Um, and when we say gender empowerment, we mean everyone. We mean LGBTQ, we mean men, we mean women, we mean non-binary, recognizing that we wanna challenge uh, gender norms to the benefit of all and build community on that. Um, so we, we ended up teaching these classes. I ended up running uh, a women's powerlifting team and sponsoring a few events for beginner women to be able to compete. And then ultimately, uh, in partnership with another NGO, we founded a community gym that was free of charge uh, and run by volunteers who now receive scholarships from Pesas y Poder uh, to study health-related um, and fitness-related uh, courses. Incredible. So one of the things I want to tap into is what we talk a lot about on this show, which we look through the lens of martial arts, right? So we'll say, you always hear people saying, you know, jujitsu, Muay Thai, various martial arts save my life. And that's, it's representative, right? It's not necessarily meant literally. It means I was headed down a path that wasn't necessarily good for me, or, you know, I was having hardship and training really helped me. But I think we see a lot of parallels there in weightlifting. And you touched on a bit of why that might be, but can you expand upon that and maybe throw in some examples? Yeah. So uh, I, I think one thing it does for women specifically is it represents a subversion of traditional types of body pressures that come through feminine beauty norms. And so to be able to revalue a woman's body as a source of strength as a source of power and not just beauty is in itself very empowering. But I think it's even more than that. Um, so it allows us to have alternative metrics by which to judge our body. That allows us to be kinder to our body. If we can move in different ways and find where our strengths are, that's an opportunity to recognize what we can already do rather than always be chasing some sort of transformation or change of the body. And that's a really different idea about what a gym space should be than what I think a lot of commercial gyms that focus on aesthetics as opposed to athletic goals um, would have in mind. So a lot of commercial gyms um, help feed the insecurity we have to keep us coming back. But this is an opportunity to really think about how the gym can become a space of affirmation uh, where we recognize what we can already do as opposed to trying to change ourselves. Uh, a space of awareness where you have to have a certain amount of sort of being in touch physically with your own space and the space around you and others, whether you're a spotter or you're lifting the bar, you have to have that kind of awareness. And also not just self-awareness in that way, but it's a social space fundamentally. And I imagine it's very similar with a dojo um, that that interaction is really important. Now we interact in different ways in those spaces, but it becomes therefore a platform to raise the awareness of others about your lived experience. And so thinking about the gym as that space um, and, and so it's a place where we also form sorts of uh, bonds with one another. 
um, in that way. I mean, everybody in life needs a spotter, you know, um, is for me a, a really powerful metaphor about, about what the gym does socially. Yeah, I love that you touched on how it just breaks down these social barriers that we have where we just don't interact with people across different genders, ages, social groups, all that often except in these, well, there's probably other contexts, but I think the gym contexts are really powerful, potent sources where it's just just like you say, right, in jiu-jitsu, for example, I'm rolling with men who are in their 60s and, you know, like young guys who if I was doing a sport like, say, soccer, I would just never interact with, right? And it's the same in the gym. The person lifting next to you, you would just never interact with them otherwise, never hear any of their life experience were you not brought together by this shared, you know, passion, drive, whatever the reason that you're lifting weights is. I love it. Absolutely. And like any other community of practice, we develop our own languages even mm. to talk around our sports. It, so it really, I mean, we even invent our own transnational languages. I can go anywhere in the world. And if I can find a gym, I automatically, regardless of how many borders I cross to, to get there, regardless of what language they speak and I speak, we have a way of understanding one another based in physical practice. And I think that in itself is really amazing. I study borders and violence. And so thinking about the gym as a space that can actually transcend those boundaries is really important to me. So yeah, I, that, that, that social component's wonderful. And I think that gets us to another part about trauma that's really important. I mean, the ritual itself is important to a self-affirmation, but we can't just think about trauma as an individual experience. Increasingly, we're recognizing the way multiple oppressions, whether they're racial oppression or gender, um, sexuality, um, ableism, how all of these different oppressions shape a sort of collective and intergenerational trauma. And if we want to get at the heart of that, then we really do have to think about social space. Can you, I love what, I love what you're saying, but, and I know you're used to talking on a very, high level about this but let's say somebody's like I have no idea what Noelle's talking about right she's talking about intergenerational trauma she's talking about social constructs like what does that mean for me as a listener to this podcast being someone who has experienced trauma of my own maybe they kind of realize that they identify with that can you talk through an example to kind of explain how that construct works to the lay person yeah so we can think about it a couple different ways and and one would be to think about the way that the everyday lives that we lead are in fact constrained in so many in ways we don't even think about by our class situation, our economic precarity. Uh, and that has been shaped by uh, racial oppression or, or racism over time. And as that's experienced by one generation and it begins to shape how they live their lives, where they move, how they move, how they talk about themselves, how they talk about other people, down to the sorts of safety advice a mother would give her daughter about how to carry herself in public. Um, and then the daughter takes on many of those behaviors, many of those habits, many of those ways of understanding the world that are constrained by the pain and suffering that her parents experienced. And so you see it being passed down from generation to generation in these ways, the same ways that you say, see economic disadvantage being passed down from generation to generation. 
So suffering is not something that we experience alone, even if we feel alone and feel isolated from everyone. Our children experience our own suffering and then our grandchildren experience our suffering. So when I say intergenerational, that's the kind of process I mean. The way that pain can be socialized um, in that process. Is that more clear? Many of yes, my students yeah, don't make sense ever, I think. So <laughs> if, if I get off into, into, into a tangent, please keep reeling me in. No, no, I, I think that's, that's really good. That's really, really helpful. And when we think about that then, what are some of the practices that you've put in place at the gym that make it different from a commercial gym? So we touched upon um, the focus on performance rather than aesthetics. What are some of the other things that I guess make it more trauma-informed? So one of the things we have um, is that when we integrated the gym with uh, men and women, we, in, we implemented a weekly kind of talk, or charla is what we call it in the gym. And everybody has to sit down who uses the gym about once a week and talk about how they're treating one another in that space and how they're making each other feel. So they have the physical exercise, but if they're going to get free membership to the gym, they also have to participate in community building exercises as well. And that's quite explicit. What are some of the like talking prompts that you use that come up? Oh, so I don't run these. I allow mm-hmm. the community to run these. So our scholarship winners who are volunteers actually are in charge of these sessions and they respond to the needs that they see surfacing at the time. So, so I'm not in charge. That's the other part about it is it's participatory. And I do hand off ownership of the sorts of practices to the people who are most directly affected by um, the presence of the gym in their lives. And that's so empowering in of itself. I think it's really important. I mean, when we talk about healing from trauma, we talk about restoring a sense of control mm-hmm. and restoring a sense of autonomy. And um, I could go in and try to run everything from the top down, but that doesn't restore autonomy and control. And the very process of the gym has to be democratized in that sense. And the real stakeholders are the ones that have to have ownership or that program's going to die. I'm only there um, when I get sabbatical for research leave or when I'm there for summer vacation and winter break. Otherwise, I have to come back to Wisconsin to teach at the university. And so it's it's also from a practical sense really important that uh, that they're in charge of the program. But it does work well, I think, from a trauma-informed kind of perspective. Initially, I was scared to turn over this control because I was between you and me, kind of worried the bodybuilders would take over and I would come back and everybody would be trying to lose weight and everybody would, there would be mirrors everywhere <laughs> and that it would turn into a space of discipline rather than emancipation in my absence because those pressures are everywhere on social media um, and they've certainly become an everyday presence even in these marginalized urban neighborhoods in San Salvador. So I really feared the infiltration of those those kind of disciplining, body shaming, fat shaming influences in that space. And I was pleasantly surprised that our scholarship winners who were selected by the community, not by me, um, rose to the occasion. And they themselves began to implement things and encourage people of, of all ages to come to the gym Um, And they've reached out to me for further training as well, because they recognize what the needs of the community are based on these focus groups that they hold every week. Um, So they're specializing in key places for health and uh, for the community. So 
Isn't that amazing? It's been, it's been wonderful to watch. <laughs> and I understand that you're conducting research at the moment. You're still collecting or where, where is that at and what are you looking at? So I have just transitioned from a former project that looked at the violence between street gangs at the borders of street gangs um, and how people understood and survived that violence in the urban fragmentation. So you've got, um, you know, a, a variety of different types of violence, both structural violence or poverty and how it constrains life uh, and direct violence. El Salvador is notorious for the homicide rate. Uh, in Central America. It's oftentimes up there with Honduras and Venezuela as some of the most violent countries in the entire world as judged by homicides. But in fact, more women die of diabetes than bullets every year. And so I began as I was on the ground doing this research on the sort of sensationalist violence of gangs and police and bullets, I became increasingly aware of this more insidious kind of violence that comes with poverty. When I would look around at the women who had sores on their ankles from untreated diabetes, or I would go to the children's museum and see kind of sugar advertised to children as a health food um, because the sugar industry had essentially sponsored that part of the museum. And so I became very interested in the ways these different kinds of violence intersect and are carried on the body, both the structural violence of poverty and the direct violence. People lead sedentary lives, both because they can't afford a gym membership and also because they're afraid to walk the streets. And it's true of both men and women for different reasons. Um, so this new work that I've started to launch is trying to explore the ways that that structures their sense of self in terms of their body. And so in the context of uh, kind of post-quarantine COVID pandemic in particular, it, this has been exacerbated. Many of these problems with body image and immobility in their own city have been exacerbated. Um, so, so that's what I'll be working on there. I'll be also asking questions about uh, the evolution of the body image in El Salvador, how our visual sense of what strength looks like is gendered and what we believe that that means um, on the body. And I'll also be looking at the, uh, the gym itself and its intervention. So I'll be doing research to see if the gym increases divisions or cleavages in the community or manages to uh, subvert the boundaries between different neighborhoods and create new kinds of community. Uh, and whether that becomes a, a liberating space or a disciplining one for people. So as I, as I got involved in founding the gym, I decided if I wanted to do it right, I really had to understand what gendered body norms are in this context. And I found a sort of dearth of literature about that in El Salvador. Um, and then I had to understand uh, exactly how the gym was interacting with uh, the community political dynamics at the local level as well. So that's what I'm working on now. Um, and it's just at a beginning phase and it's going in a lot of different directions with different programs in different communities as well. And when you say gendered body norms, that means like the assumption that men have muscles and women don't and, you know, how your stomach should look and your butt should look and things like that. Is that right? Yeah, I think there's a, a variety of qualities and characteristics and capacities and roles 
that we tend to associate as masculine and feminine. Mm. Uh, and so I want to explore how people make sense of their own body in that context that shapes um, how we relate to others and ourselves. So fascinating. So for example, we might say that if somebody perceives that women are supposed to not have muscles, be, you know, you know, super feminine, and then we associate that feminine with not strong. And might that translate into other areas of life where we assume like, oh, I'm not strong, I can't do, and that that is in of its own self like a type of oppression? Is that the kind of things that you're looking at? Yeah, I'm really interested in that. And what's really interesting is that in this context, I find that women are perceived to have a different kind of strength that's more closely associated with endurance. So Mm -hmm. there's a saying, la mujer aguanta, the woman suffers. You know, like she has a capacity for suffering um, as a mother, you know, and it's very much tied to the type of respect that's available to women in traditional caretaker roles. But the problem with that is why does she have to endure? It has to do with then a all sorts of structures of oppression based on her gender that are normalized by this idea that la mujer aguanta, uh, by the idea that the, the woman has a capacity to suffer. Whereas the men are viewed as the source of strength that's more associated with poder or power, you know? Um, so when we think about weightlifting, for example, that sort of strength capacity. Uh, and, and that comes then with a need to hide your own vulnerability. So it's not just about the women in that mm. sense, right? Who suffer a sort of oppression, but there are men that if they break from this traditional masculine script of the powerful um, muscular kind of version of man, and it doesn't have to be physical muscles, but um, aggressive, um, if they break from that script, they themselves are put into a vulnerable situation and could become a victim of violence as well. Uh, so when I, when I used to live in El Salvador with my son, who is now 17, at the time he was five or five, he was five years old. I used to walk him to school and he would be weeping because he hadn't learned Spanish yet. And I would drop him off at the school alone and he was terrified and he would be just crying. And the, the security guard would grab him and say, um, los hombres no lloran, no lloran. Men don't cry, men don't cry. And he'd sort of shake him, you know? And that in itself is, is, a tr- is incredibly traumatic. Um, so for me, when I talk about challenging these gender norms, I think about challenging them for everyone, to the betterment of everyone, including creating a space where men can show vulnerability that otherwise they might be punished for. Yeah, wow. Uh, I can't imagine how scary it would be as a five-year-old to be going to school and not and not speaking the language and then being shook, shooken, shaken, shaken for, <laughs> for crying. Um, and that when you mentioned your son, so he is your, I guess, link to having seen some martial arts. When did he get into doing jiu-jitsu? He got into doing jiu-jitsu after we moved to Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. He was never into sports. We used to walk across the beach in Mexico and he'd say, I'm dying. I'd say, why? He'd say, I'm breaking a sweat. You know, <laughs> he was never outdoorsy or into sports. That was like mom's thing. And then he picked up jujitsu. And I remember the look on his face after his first class 
because he said, mom, it doesn't matter how big you are. Um, if you're off balance, you'll fall down, you know? And, and then the next day he came home and he said, mom, I figured out this thing called momentum. <laughs> and, and, and it was wonderful because it wasn't for him physical. It was a way around the physical. So he, I think, and I can't speak for him, but, you know, I think he felt vulnerable from being moved around. I took him to El Salvador. I dumped him alone in Mexico while I followed a smuggling route. And then I took him back to New York and then I moved him to Rhode Island and then I moved him to Wisconsin. And so he had this sort of his own instability that he was grappling with and his own isolation. And when he got into the dojo, he learned a way around it by using his intellect. Um, and it gave him a way to connect with people physically, but on his own terms. And so that was like, as a mother, like seeing that, that, that first week of jujitsu was amazing. And now of course uh, his instructor is, is, has a kind of natural capacity for leadership, which is what is necessary to run, I think, a successful dojo. And uh, had, had incorporated him into teaching the younger kids and had worked him into some of the adult classes as he got older. And um, being able to make those types of transitions in that community into different roles that clearly stood for social progress was also a really important part of, I think, um, delivering my son through difficult times. Yeah, I think it's so important that we have more people like his instructor, like you, that are delivering exercise in a way that's just a little bit different to what we assume. Because I think a lot of people go through life assuming they're not sporty, they're not coordinated, you know, like I myself definitely didn't resonate with being sporty because I wasn't good at catching or throwing a ball. And most sports seem to revolve around your ability to track a ball around a field or court or something. And it wasn't until I found martial arts that I realized that there was something that I had an affinity to. And I think the gym, the well, martial arts gyms are for sure, but even lifting gyms are a way for people to realize that, you know, you can spend a lot of time learning the movement pattern and the act of learning the movement pattern is the sport in itself and they are primal movement patterns that our bodies are meant to do and so they're not so how quickly can you react to something and if you're not reacting fast enough then you're going to lose the game and you know it's all it all comes within what you want to control at the pace that you want to go at and I think that's so empowering for people to have movement practices that they that they resonate with because that you know nobody's going to exercise if they think that the only way to exercise is to run and they hate running or play play football and they hate football or whatever it is absolutely i think there's a saying that kind of captures that and i won't get it right but it's uh you know don't ask a fish to climb a tree you know <laughs> um, and we're all we're all made for something and it's just if you haven't found it yet you just haven't tried enough different modalities of movement um, cause it's out there, you know, how your body, what your body is made for. I'm under five feet tall. There's a limited repertoire of sports I could do seriously. And it just happens that I found one that works. Um, which is a beautiful thing when you find that moment. And I, to see my son find it was also really exciting. Yeah, it's great. I think like, you know, when I was younger, I used to wonder 
like why why do sports exist like why do we have sports why as a human race did we make this thing that doesn't seem to be productive in terms of getting food in terms of getting shelter unless you're you know an elite athlete and you're earning money off it but even then I wondered well why do we pay the money to do something that doesn't benefit us in in any way was of course the the surface thinking that I had as probably a you know 12 10 year old when I was thinking about these sorts of things and the longer that I'm in the industry and the more time that I spend around and the arts too you know you think music and and uh, you know painting drawing what whatever it might be any of these types of creative expression and that I think sport really falls under that and might end up being critical right what your research I think will will find and obviously there's a rationale for doing the research because you would be doing the research if other people had started kind of finding similar things and we already know that there is research linking you know involvement involved in weightlifting and of course there's a plethora in yoga and and all these different things for not just individual trauma recovery but collective trauma recovery and we're, we're seeing that in you know the use of yoga for people of color and all of these different things there it's like sport might actually be critical into making our the human race able to live together and cohabitate and thrive it's it's incredible it really is and um i think just recognizing the way mind and body come together is a really important step that society is making now Uh, As far as understanding both trauma, trauma as a concept brings together mind and body in a way Mm -hmm. that allows us to grapple with pain and suffering uh, and not just psychological pain versus physical pain, but understand the relationships between those. Um, So it's a super exciting moment to be alive where you can kind of see sports fulfilling that role now that we have that concept um, through which we can utilize it. So in addition to the research that you're collecting at the moment, what's next? What's next for Pesas y Poder? So Pesas y Poder uh, has a big fundraising drive. Mm-hmm. Uh, COVID recovery. Our indoor gym sadly had to close. Mm-hmm. And there is no end to the pandemic in sight for El Salvador because they are not likely to get access to the vaccine anytime soon in the places where Pesas y Poder is working. Um, and people are scared to go indoors in the gym in these places. And we're dealing with a lot of people with underlying health conditions like diabetes or high blood pressure that would make them particularly vulnerable if they got sick. So uh, the indoor gym has closed and we would like to build a fresh air open gym as a COVID safer alternative uh, for people to use. So that's our big project. We also have another project that is working with women as a body image intervention post-quarantine. So you can imagine how hard quarantine has been in places like Wisconsin for, for everyday people. But when you're dealing with people who already lived at the very edges of, uh, of um, subsistence, the people who were in urban areas and very, very poor, who weren't given any warning before the quarantine to sort of prepare and were locked inside their homes with extreme food insecurity, um, unable to do the types of exercise they normally do, which is work. So many of the women I work with, um, they'll walk to market carrying goods to sell and then walk home and lift a heavy bucket to do it. And they weren't able to do this for about four months. They were completely enclosed 
and given very meager food rations from the government. Um, and as a consequence, uh, they lost a lot of muscle mass. So they may have gained weight, but that's less important whether or not they gained weight. They, the fact that they lost the muscle mass underneath it, many of them are complaining of back pain. Um, many of them feel ashamed to come out of their home now. Um, they're talking about having difficulty returning to their normal lifestyles. And so we're going to be working with them to do a sort of trauma-informed intervention on body image specifically to get them moving a little bit again. And to use movement as a way to make them more aware of where their pain is coming from. And I don't just mean from their back, I mean from the inequality and poverty and from the political choices that have been made that structure their everyday lives. So I'm a political scientist and I'm very interested if we can use movement as a form of political resistance. If trauma and the violence that causes the experience of trauma are structured by political choices and politics and power, then any movement that addresses that, any movement that helps us survive more comfortably in our own body is a form of political resistance. And so that's the idea of some of the new programming that we're gonna be working on as well. How will you deliver the body image program? So I am working with a nonprofit as a partner. Pesa there is going to work with Programa Velasco, which is a women's empowerment program that does a lot of women's entrepreneurship and other types of health and childcare programming. Um, and we are going to work with the women that are enrolled in their program. Uh, and that will be delivered via WhatsApp videos that they'll have to do in their home in mother-daughter teams. And then they'll check in at Programa Velasco with a, a video camera to be able to, to have a sort of interview each week. And they'll get a delivery of fresh fruits and vegetables when they do their check-in. Um, and this will last several months uh, before I get down there to kind of as an on-ramp. And when I get down there, we'll run workshops for um, lifting and movement exercises. It sounds so fantastic. And I think it really puts into perspective the, of course, COVID and the pandemic has been a source of hardship for everybody. When you look at layering it in on top of these other forms of trauma and it just becomes, you know, so heartbreaking to think about. And I think it's a really good moment to pause and to express gratitude for how lucky that we are to be in Western civilization where some of those issues just, they're not relevant to us. They're not, not relevant to us, but they're not applicable to us. We don't endure the same things it's not the same stakes it's not the same um and yet like the body image things that are coming up we're hearing about that all the time here as well too and so it's yeah. it's, it's it's interesting that it's it's on a different level it's deeper and it's impacted by more things but then as humans then we're all still suffering from the same things it's just that our lived experiences of them are vastly different and subjectively of course they're all terrible but then you know, we look to people like you who are thinking, well, how can I help those who are genuinely worse off? And, and then in the end, I think they're going to help me too, in that as I do this research, which I've, I've tried to frame in a participatory way so that they will co-write the next program for the next group, mm -hmm. uh, I'll also be learning from them in ways that I think will help us figure out how to cope with the immobility that we're suffering at this time. And, and so I really feel like there's a sort of solidarity to be had, despite the fact that being locked up in my house is quite different than being locked up in their house. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't compare the two, you know, 
um, the level of precarity, insecurity, violence, hunger that my friends in El Salvador has suffered uh, is, is, is just devastating. And I can see it on their bodies, the change. But at the same time, I feel like I have a lot to learn from the survival strategies that they're adapting all the time. And so being able to talk across these contexts, because our contexts are not disconnected. Mm. I think the, the other thing the, the pandemic has shown really in a beautiful way, in some sense, is the way our fates are tied together globally. That um, if the virus is allowed to spread in one place, sooner or later, it boomerangs and comes back to another place. Um, that it spreads really quickly because we're connected. And so I feel like by, by learning from one another across these different contexts and by lending a hand uh, across borders, ultimately, like we have to do that if it's a global kind of public health crisis. So. Yeah, really, really big chunks of food for thought, I think, for everyone to ponder and think about over the next couple of days. And while you're doing that, how do people donate or get involved with this project? Sounds fantastic. I'm sure a lot of people want to help. I would love it if everyone visit our website at pesasypoder.org. That's P-E-S-A-S-Y-P-O-D-E-R. Pesas, E, spelled with a Y, poder at dot org. Um, I would love it if you look at the website. We also have links to our partner NGOs that are working on the ground as well. I'd love you to explore those. And I'd love you to learn more about El Salvador in particular, which is the place that has stolen my heart. And now that I, I, I'm uh, dedicating all of this work to, to, to heal. So... Um, please learn about the intergenerational struggle of El Salvador going back to the Civil War and into the present. Now, do you have any, um, I'm guessing there's probably resources on the website, but do you have any book recommendations around that if anyone wants to really dig into it? But, but anyone, I mean me, I'm kind of fascinated now. Okay, I have so many book recommendations, <laughs> but I'll start with a pitch for my book. Okay. Um, so if you want to understand the migration route uh, and contemporary situation, um, my book is called The Migrant Passage, Clandestine Journeys from Central America. And Georgia, I will get you a copy. Um, oh, thank so you. I how to ship it to you. Um, that would be uh, one I would like to pitch. Um, there are a few books I'm looking at my shelf. Um, oh, hold on. We're getting a, a real life view of the book here for anyone who's just listening to it. So. Not my book. This is, uh, I think this is a wonderful update on the politics of El Salvador and the contemporary situation. It's called After Insurgency, Revolution and Electoral Politics in El Salvador. It's by Ralph Sprinkles. And then I've got, I've got a fabulous book that I just read, running to my bookshelf. Uh, so this is the book that I assigned for my class this semester to the students, and it's a memoir rather than an academic analysis. So this might be the best book uh, for people who are just getting started. And this is called Unforgetting, a Memoir of Family, Migration, Gangs, and Revolution in the Americas by Roberto Lovato. Lovato. Um, so those are some of the books that I've had on my bookshelf just very recently um, about El Salvador. Um, but yeah. I could I give you a long list. If you want, if you want a list, I'll make you a list to post on your website. Please, um, we'll put it in the show notes along with the website link. But I think it's a really 
it's it's been a time the pandemic I think seems like a lot of people that I've spoken to anyway started trying to learn languages and things like that a lot of people are learning Spanish it's a good time to really learn where some of the countries who you know will resonate with all of these words that you're learning I think it's a beautiful way to tie things together if that's something that people have been doing like I've even been doing that I think it's common I think it's wonderful. And I think that there's something really important about El Salvador that we overlook, which is that we already de facto live in a society in the US that's very deeply integrated with Salvadoran society. That there's been many, many decades of mass migration um, to the United States to the point where if you go to El Salvador, it's rare to meet someone on the street that doesn't have a family member in the United States already, Mm -hmm. uh, or doesn't have uh, a deep, kind of social tire link to the United States or an experience here already and has already returned either through deportation or uh, voluntarily. And so it's a dollarized economy. Our political economies are closely linked. Um, Everything we get here in terms of media is also um, available there. So, you know, people are receiving social media, Facebook, all of these things. I'm in touch every day with people there and back and forth. And so this idea that the problems there are disconnected from the problems here, I think is something that we really have to um, have to attack, that there are clear inequalities and many of these problems are sort of felt more forcefully there or experienced more harshly there. But but we're already we're already connected. So. I think the message learn more about El Salvador is already pretty clear, but if. I always like to give everyone an opportunity. You have an audience of, I would I would say it's it's a split. The audience to this podcast is largely female, but there are a lot of men who also listen to this. So if you want to say anything to everyone, this is your moment to spread your whatever message you would like to. Please visit our website at pickpeoplethere.org and help us strengthen these communities. Uh, strengthen muscles, but also strengthen communities. It's really important. Absolutely. Don't forget, I talk about this on the podcast a bit, but when you help other people, you really help yourself, not just in helping us find ways that we can apply some of this learning to our own societies, but also just even on a an individual basis, right? You're going to get such a rush of dopamine. You're going to feel so great. And you're going to literally strengthen your immune system when you help other people too. So even if you look at things from a fully selfish point of view, I think it's a wonderful thing that you can do for yourself and for others. Comes back faster than good karma. <laughs> yes. Yes. I love that. Thank you so much for coming on this podcast, Noel. I've had a great time. I've learned so much and I'm super excited to get reading your website and books as well. Have you thought of something to be grateful for today? What was it? I'm grateful for the amazing women that train with me at the Fight Back Project. I'm grateful for Nari and the beautiful song Shape Me heard at the beginning and end of every episode. And I'm grateful for you for listening to this show and helping martial arts keep saving lives. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. If you'd like to leave me a review to help more people find the show, that's a bonus. You need to know that nobody shapes me but me. Do
don't gotta tell you what my name is, I don't gotta explain it. Walk in the room, hear a boom erupting like I'm famous. I'm here shedding shells, I'm shameless. I fear nothing, no complacence. Walk to many tight ropes with no hope, so I became this poster they hold over all the heads of trauma holders. You don't need to know my history, I move boulders. Atlas shrug, cause I lifted the weight above his shoulders. No pretense of defense, move first like chess soldiers. This goes deeper than empowerment, cause... I'm the one the power in. Physical meets mental challenge me to keep devouring. If I can't change the scenery, at least I change perspectives. No longer isolated, but elevated and selective. Darkest places become beautiful spaces. This is where rage meets patience. Meets power meets gracious. Meets we're so glad you came in. The feeling is contagious. When you the walking impact of intended bad intentions. When you the manifest enough collecting all they tensions. You the soul and body hold it all and still remember. But I'm a work in progress, testament to all contenders. Forgot what it was like to have control over self. Forgot what it was like to be the one in charge. Forgot in my reflection I could see all my wealth. Forgot that with my bare hands I break all these bars, barriers and obstacles. They can't cage me. They can't chronicle all my experiences and reduce them to appearances. When I was truly beaten, gave myself clearances to fall down, mess up, and get myself back up. I'm not looking for clovers because I don't believe in luck. Damn, you were badass. I heard them say it clearly. Why, thank you very much. I know now I'm not weary of what's next for me because I expect to see growth like I was planted, watered, fed, and bloomed to be the positivity and accountability. Knowing they won't step if I'm the agent of my agency. I think I found my voice again, huh? I think I found my voice again, huh? I'm not sorry, I'm not sorry, you're the end where I begin. Boundaries, I know them well. Take a breath and meditate. Who is she? I know her well. Now I get to open gates. One, two, one, two. I don't need your permission. And if you get uncomfortable, then use your intuition to know that I won't stay where respect is ever missing. And everything I do, that's me making decisions. It's truly underrated the value of self worth. Forgot that I was rich from the moment of my birth. A penny for my thoughts, no, really, you can't afford it. You cannot buy my story, rewrite it, or record it. You cannot buy my story, rewrite it, or record it, huh?